Hello everyone, this is Federico Toledo and you are listening to Quality Sense Podcast. We are kicking off the fourth season of this podcast. It's been a while since our last episode. I was missing this space. I was missing the conversations with people working in software quality. People willing to share their knowledge, their experience with the testing community. This year I will continue these conversations, bringing you the possibility to learn from experts, experiment new ideas, have different perspectives, and also trying to find new voices, providing a platform to reach a broader audience and get more feedback and networking opportunities. Today we will start with an interview I did last year. It was about time to publish it. I really recommend to listen to this episode with a notebook and a pen because you will hear very actionable ideas that will let you improve the way you are testing, particularly the way you think about risks. If you don't know Paul Holland, in the first part of the episode you will learn a lot about him, how he went from computer science to be an airplane pilot to work in software testing how he became a rapid software testing trainer and how he got involved with the Whopper, the, the workshop on performance and reliability. Then we started to talk about the main topic we wanted to address, which was about a critical part of our labor as testers, which is identifying and analyzing risks. Paul shared some basic concepts, but also a lot of specific tactics to improve our creativity and how to critically think about risks. We even ended up talking about the Monty Pythons. You have to listen to that. It was a very fun conversation full of anecdotes and real stories in the field. I had a lot of fun with Paul and I hope you also enjoyed this episode. I'd like to thank my team, Abstracta, for sponsoring and helping me to create this podcast. Abstracta is a company fully dedicated to software testing that can work with you to push the quality of your products and processes to the next level. Hello, Paul. <laughs> Finally, we did it. We are here. <laughs> we are here. Yeah. Fourth attempt. Fourth attempt. You're right. Uh, but yeah, now we are here. So excited to, to have you here in the show. You know, it's been a while since the last time we had a chance to, to have a chat. I think it was in... in France. In France, in, in the Whopper, right? Yeah. Yeah, in Marseille. It was an amazing week over there. It was a very nice week. And we also looking to... forward for more conferences, in-person conferences, right? I am I am going to be going to Germany in November. Oh, cool. So I'm doing Agile Testing Days. I'm doing a tutorial with Heib Schutz. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. What is amazing is how I just badly pronounced his name, actually, because <laughs> I'm sure I didn't do it right. <laughs> Paul, uh, one of the first questions I have for you is how did you end up working in software testing? Wow. How did that happen? How did that happen? Um, well, I graduated from with a science degree in 1987 
And the thing that I learned after four years of uh, doing a computer science degree is that I do not want to be a developer by as my job. Uh, okay. I wanted to work with computers. I like computers. I, I understand computing. I understand coding. I feel I'm a good coder, but I just found it boring. Uh, the design part wasn't enough of the job for me. It was mostly a typing exercise. And so I was not overly thrilled with the idea of, uh, of being a coder uh, or a developer or, uh, for my career. So I became an applications engineer at Xerox working on high-speed laser printers. Uh, I did pre and post sales support. So I needed to use my technical skills, but I wasn't coding as a primary job. I did some coding on the side. And then I became a pilot in the Canadian military as a complete tangent uh, off of what I was doing. And I flew Sea King helicopters for a couple of years. Uh, so five years in the military, uh, full time uh, uh, through training to be a pilot. And then about two years flying Sea King helicopters off the back of ships. And then in 1995, I got out of the military and uh, was just about to marry my, my current wife. And I went for a uh, I reached out to old friends uh, in high tech, and one of them said that uh, he had mentioned my name to a friend of his uh, who was a director at a company called Newbridge, uh, and that person, his name was Guy, asked uh, my friend Sean, what's Paul doing? And uh, he said, oh, he's just getting out of the military, he's looking for a job, and Guy said, hey, I have a job for him, send him to me. So without even applying, I ended up going and uh, talking with Guy, who was a, I, interestingly a friend of my brother's, so uh, I actually knew him. And uh, the job interview went something like, the job that I want you to do is this. And he described it and he said, I need three things from you. You need to know Unix. And I said, I don't know Unix. And he said, you can learn. He said, you need to know telecom. And I said, I don't know telecom. And he said, it's okay, you can learn. And I need you to be able to learn. And I know you can do that because you were a pilot in the military. So he hired me on a three-month contract to do some testing. And then at the end of that, uh, I got flipped to full-time. And I've been in testing ever since. So <clears throat> that's how I started as a tester. It was because a friend of mine um, stopped in the hallway to talk to Guy um, uh, because I had told him a funny story about Guy, which I'm not going to re re uh, repeat here, but he didn't think it was true. So he went to Guy as he passed him in the hallway at work and he said, I just heard from Paul this story. And Guy laughed and said, yes, that's true. What's Paul doing? And that was how that part started. So it was because I told my friend Sean a funny story about Guy that I'm a software tester. So, <laughs> and also uh, being a pilot was part of the decision of uh, of Guy, so it, it it influenced the final yeah, decision. Yeah, I did. I did later find out once I was no longer reporting to Guy that he had actually applied to be a pilot in the Canadian military and didn't make it through the selection process. So, and Guy is a very smart guy. So um, he, I guess, made the decision that ha uh, because I made it through that. 
I must be smart uh, or able to learn or something. So someone has already assessed that, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That so th that ended up great. The Guy had said I want to be a pilot, and then went through the selection process and didn't make it. So that helps. Okay, perfect. And also now, as part of your career in software testing, you are also a rapid software testing trainer. Trainer, right? I I am so. Um, yeah, that, that's a fairly long story. I'll try to hit just the highlights. So when I first became a test manager in 2000, uh, I realized that nobody at my company had received any training on being a tester. It was all essentially, oh, you know something about computers. Uh, we need testers. You're a tester. And the vast majority went from being a tester, and then they moved into being a software developer. This particular company used testing as a stepping stone. You would go in, write automation, uh, learn the systems, and then move into uh, development. And uh, I was asked, you know, when do you want to move into development? And I said, I don't. I like being a tester. And they It baffled them. They were, what? Why wouldn't you want to be a developer? And so I said, because I enjoy testing too much. It's it's far more interesting to me. And uh, I ended up being the first test manager. And uh, I looked for somebody who could do reasonable testing education that wasn't something like the uh, the certification test uh, certification. Um, Uh, training because I just at a glance I could see that that wasn't overly helpful. So I found a gentleman named Ross Collard uh, who uh, was likely, if I look back at my career, the single best phone call I have ever made. Uh, Ross uh, agreed to do the training. We became friends. Uh, he modified his training to be uh, pertinent to to our teams and. Um, About a year and a half after that he had provided the training, he provided two or three courses for of testing training for us. And then he contacted me to say, um, I'm hosting this workshop on performance and reliability testing, Whopper. And uh, I was invited to Uh, go to the first one. It was a peer conference. I had never heard of the LOSC style, the Los Altos workshop on software testing style of peer conferences. It, it was intriguing. And he was saying, you know, it's invitation only. And I asked my boss if I could apply. And they said, yes. So I applied and much to my surprise, I got accepted. So I went to the first Whopper and the facilitator was James Bach. So James and I met in October 2003 in New York City at the first Whopper conference. Uh, and uh, that went fine. Uh, I was completely overwhelmed and out of my league. There was Rob Sabarin was there. Um, there was a guy named Roland Stenz from Vancouver who uh, was fairly well known and um, Scott Barber, uh, Ross Collard. <clears throat> so there, there was quite a few um well-known testers in this conference and I was uh, new, fairly new. I'd only been testing at this point for eight years and I felt out of my league. 
But uh, the second one was held in May the next year and James facilitated that one as well. And I got invited back and that time I felt more comfortable and, uh, and I actually participated quite a lot. And then in the fall of 2004, there was supposed to be another conference in Chicago and Kem Kaner was gonna be the facilitator, but Hurricane Ivan was going over his house at the time that he was supposed to fly out. And so we didn't have a facilitator. I volunteered to be a facilitator and uh, I have facilitated almost every Whopper since. We're up to Whopper 28 and I've facilitated all but two of them um, from Whopper 3 uh, through Whopper 23. I facilitated all of them and then I had to skip two and then I went back to being the facilitator. So all of that to say that's how I met James Bach. Having met James in that way and becoming friendly with him, I had him come in and teach rapid software testing at Alcatel-Lucent, and uh, he did two courses of that. And on the second course, I said to him, um, I would like to teach rapid software testing. And I thought he was going to say, yeah, so what? Forget it, because it was at the time it was literally just him and Michael Bolton who were the instructors. But he didn't. He actually said, I think you'd be an excellent instructor of rapid software testing. Here's what you would need to do. And he listed off around 16 steps that I would have to do off the top of his head. And so I wrote them all down and I just started to go through them. And it took me two, maybe three years to go through the entire list. It was a, it was a long list and it was a lot of, a lot of work. Uh, it involved co-teaching with him, co-teaching with Michael, going through every single exercise with both of them. There was a, a bunch, a bunch of stuff that I had to do. And once I finished that list, he literally said, okay, you can now teach rapid software testing. And I started to teach it internally at Alcatel. Uh, I taught about five or six classes internally at Alcatel. And then after I'd been there for 17 years, they were eliminating my department and they offered me a good severance package or I could get another job internally. So I took the severance package and uh, became independent and actually started to teach rapid software testing for James. So I did that for a year and a half. And then I uh, moved to New York and started another part of my career. So amazing. I, I told you it was a long answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you try to to make it short, but yeah, that that was the short. Failed. I failed. <laughs> that was a, probably a medium length answer. You can edit out most of that. Yeah. I met Ross Collard. I became an instructor. There you I, go. I had the chance to participate in the in in that workshop in in Uruguay a couple of years ago when we invited. Michael, uh, to to go to testing UI, uh, the conference in our small country, and uh, we had a great time with with Michael. It was like a lot of things to learn. Even when you when when we went out for for beers, <laughs> you know, it's the like, learning never stops. Yeah, never stops. It's like all the time asking questions and and. Uh, Rasoning about different things, every everything related to software testing. I, I remember even in, we were in a hanging out in a in a bar, and Michael say, "Let's play set the set game," uh, and he had the the game in, in his pocket, and mm -hmm. it was like another exercise similar to those in in the in the workshop, right? Yeah, and it was amazing. Yeah, set is great for pattern matching. Yeah. Um, 
we also do art show, uh, the dice game, the pen game. There's just so many in quotes games that aren't really games. Uh, plenty questions is another good one where you come up with a bizarre scenario and with just like 20 question, yes, no type questions, you have to figure out what, what happened. So like, anyway, that's fine. I won't give an example, but yeah, there's, there's lots of, of testing games. Uh, uh, there are some that you can buy in the store uh, that end up being very applicable to testing one of them has colored triangles and I can't remember the name of it, but they're different size colored triangles and it's kind of like mastermind, but a lot more complicated. Right. Uh, so, um, and on the dice game, if you think you've done the dice game, make up a new rule and do it again. So it's, it's a never ending game. You're only limited by your imagination. So. So it's like a, a, you could take the, the workshop more than one time. And it's worth it because the same exercises are different every time, right? They, they can be, yeah. So the, the way that I would recommend if you are taking RST multiple times is try to take it from different instructors because yeah. James, Michael, uh, me, Hybe, uh, Hybe Schultz is, the, uh, is another instructor and Griffin Jones is the fifth instructor. So there's the five of us. We all teach it differently. I've seen everybody do the exercises except for Griffin um, <clears throat> because uh, I just haven't had an opportunity to, to watch Griffin uh, step through those exercises. But I do know that all five of us teach very differently, even though it's the same underlying uh, concepts. The way we teach what we stress is very different based on our own experiences. So... Um, when I teach it, I tend to focus uh, a lot on the implementation of the theory and how I have now, I'm on my fifth time implementing it at different companies, how the, the challenges that I faced and things that, uh, that have helped me, things that have worked at one company, not worked at another company. And so stressing that element of it while going over really the, the same uh, um, underlying um, app. Uh, pillars, I guess, of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, plus, if you took RST over three years ago, I think it's very different now. It, it, uh, about three years ago, uh, for the first time, James, Michael, and I all co-taught uh, a course, and we did the. It was the first um, uh, time where we were teaching um, a slightly more agile version uh, of the course, uh, where there's a, a product that James and Michael created and we go through um, more of the, the development of that product and testing it as part of a, the um, how you can approach testing it with a, a, an RST methodology. So it's, it is a different course uh, and uh, it's, it's good. It's always good. Plus James and Michael have uh, RSTM. So rapid software testing for managers. There's rapid software testing applied uh, RSTE, I can't even remember what the E stands for. But <laughs> there, there's lots of different uh, focuses that, that you can take. I guess. So it, it works out uh, pretty well. And if um, most of the time, if you take just RST, it's two or three day classes, depending which one, you, it's enough to open your mind and open your, your um, thoughts processes, but it's, 
it is difficult to then apply that to um, changing uh, how your work is doing it. So I would recommend taking multiple classes just to become better at it. Interesting. One of, one of the topics that I remember that is uh, uh, very important in the, in the workshop is about the risks, right? It's like everything mm -hmm. is connected to risks and how testing can help to identify and, and maybe uh, address the different risks that, that can be around a product, right? Yeah. And I know that you also have a specific workshop uh, for risks analysis, right? Yeah, there, there was um, an interesting workshop that James held on Orcas Island in uh, um, the north west of the United States where he lives. Uh, there was 15 of us who went to this risk analysis workshop. And at one point, uh, at the beginning of the workshop, James asked how many people here know how to do a risk analysis. And I didn't put up my hand. And um, James noticed and called me out on it. And he said, Paul, I know you know how to do a risk analysis. And at that time, uh, which was only three or four years ago, four years ago now, at that time, I still thought that there was some magical procedure that everybody should follow when they're doing a risk analysis. And I was, I guess, surprised even then, even though... I was at the stage of my career where, where I was that there, the risk analysis is essentially can be as simple, like there, there are some things you can do, but it can be as simple as brainstorming with other members of your team saying what could go wrong and identifying things that can go wrong. There, I've now done a risk analysis. What? It's that easy? Yeah, it's that easy. Thinking about What could go wrong in a way that might impact the company, our customers, uh, the integrity of our data, anything like that. And just thinking about, you know, well, what if that link goes down? What if, um, uh, you know, uh, people can, can they hack us? All of these different things that you can think of that can go wrong. And then how can I test to mitigate that risk. So if you're at a risk of people hacking you, then you do more security testing and you look for SQL injections and cross site uh, scripting and things like that. But um, it, there is no magical process. Individual companies might introduce them, but I was quite surprised that, um, yeah, I not only knew how to do a risk analysis, but I've been doing it for years and that's really all there was to it. And then, being able to focus your testing around the risks that you think are the most important. Uh, a friend of mine, Jordy Kitt, who worked with me at, I guess, two companies ago now, Doran Jones, he used to do his test plans by identifying risks, and then he would come up with test charters or test objectives to, to test each risk. That was how he came up with his testing. I came up with my testing thinking about the charters, first, like, and I never officially identified the risk that the charters were testing for, even though I guess underlying it, there was always a reason or a risk behind every test that I was, or test charter that I was coming up with. Yeah. But Jordy would identify them and then say, because of this thing that could go wrong, I'm going to execute this test charter, which for him helped him focus the charter on a particular risk. So yeah, maybe, lots maybe, of different ways of doing it. 
Yeah, maybe this is a, a specific way to make it more explicit because uh, from my perspective, everything you think as a test or, or something that you want to test, you are thinking un maybe unconsciously about a, a related risk that you want to cover with that. Correct. Why, why would I be saying, uh, you know, test the login procedure for, um, you know, various uh, types of input? Uh, so in other words, can I do a SQL injection? Can I... Uh, Uh, enter too many characters? What if I enter uh, one username and someone else's password? A bug I've actually seen that lets you log in. Um, things like that. Why am I thinking of testing those things? Because in the way too long I've been testing, 26 years, I see, I've seen failures. I've seen risks, things that can break. So that's what I'm doing, but you're right. I don't explicitly say I'm doing this for that risk like Jordy does, but that is underlying every single thing that I'm doing is as a result of a risk that I'm either aware of personally uh, from personal experience or a risk that I've heard about uh, something that I know could go wrong. So it, it's you're right, a, it makes it explicit. And mainly for, for those testers starting their career uh, with less experience, maybe sometimes it's good to do that connection because, for, for instance, I, I'm thinking of an example. Uh, if you are trying with different characters in a input that receives only numbers and you say, mm -hmm. why should I test with characters? Why should I try with this? And an example of a usage of a mobile application for a person in the in, in you know maybe running or, or doing some activity that you in, in under this context you cannot pay much attention or you cannot be precise on, on when you are tapping in the phone. This yep. is a, 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 a increases the chances that you are miss the number and put a character. And you don't want the app to close and 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 lost all the data that you already uh, yep. put. A, a, a heuristic that I use um, that is what could a good user do by mistake, as you just indicated. I didn't mean to hit that, but I was walking while I was trying to enter it and I hit the wrong character and didn't notice. So what might a good user do by mistake, but also what might a malicious user do on purpose? I'm not going to accidentally type in drop table, but a malicious <laughs> user is going to intentionally try to drop a table. So the SQL injection, that makes sense to me that you're, you're thinking both what might somebody do by mistake and what might uh, somebody else do on purpose. A bug that I've seen in the past is... I thought I was pasting in my username and instead I pasted in three pages of a Word document. <laughs> I was working on a Unix machine that had uh, a, a Windows emulator on it that cross when I did a copy in the Windows emulator or on the Unix box, it would fill the copy buffer of both. And on the Unix machine, I had highlighted my username, which meant it was in the copy buffer. But before I pasted it, I got interrupted and I went and I, in the Word document, I cut and paste three pages of the Word document because uh, I was just moving them to another section. And then when I went back to the Unix page, my username was highlighted. So my brain said, that's in your copy buffer. 
And so I pasted three pages of a Word document into a command line login, which um, caused a whole bunch of beeping. And, uh, and <laughs> it, it, upon further investigation, uh, when I was logged into the control card, it wasn't too bad. But when I was logged into a line card, uh, on the system, it actually rebooted the system or the, the line card itself rebooted. So, oh, okay. So something else that started sort of benign now became this. And so I thought, aha, a good user might do this on purpose because that's, or by mistake, because that's literally what I just did. Um, so that's the type of thing when you say no user would do this, the answer to that is no user that you can think of would do this on purpose. So, yeah. Totally. Quality Sense Podcast, where you will have the chance to improve your sense for quality by listening to some leaders who are amazing at what they do in the software industry. You mentioned that doing a research analysis is just brainstorming about the possible risks. But maybe it's my mind of engineer that thinks I need a process to know that I'm following the steps and getting to a, an expected good result, right? So is there... You want me to come up with a process right now? I don't know. Maybe some guidelines to, to know that I'm not missing. How, how do I know that my brainstorming with my peers or with my team is good enough? Uh, well... Um, you will never identify all the risks. Um, there's just too many risks that we don't know about, too many failures that have not been identified. However, <clears throat> the whole methodology of brainstorming, there's a, a pretty intriguing sort of science as to how our brains work behind that. And simple steps that, that I like to follow on a brainstorming session is present the issue in this case, what, what are the risks that we might face with this feature to everybody in advance of the meeting, let's say a day in advance, at least a day in advance of the meeting and ask everybody to write out the risks that they can think of. So your brain has now consciously tried to identify risks that you've thought of for say 20 minutes, half an hour, you have a set period of time Um, for your creativity aspect, having a set period of uninterruptible time with a known start time and a known end time helps your creativity. If you want more information of that, look up anything by John Cleese, uh, the uh, Monty Python comedian. Uh, he's done a huge amount of research into creativity. And uh, he has some uh, videos that, that are on YouTube. Uh, he did a commencement speech at Vimeo, which is incredibly insightful. Uh, anyway, uh, so having a known set start time and a known set end time, you want at least half an hour, uh, probably even longer, where you're sitting there and just trying to think of something. Then stop thinking about it, go on with your life. Uh, and in the meantime, your subconscious is going to keep thinking about it. When you then have the meeting, do a round robin format where I identify a risk that I've thought of and uh, 
we can have a discussion about it, or if somebody has a similar one, they can add to it so that the, the risk uh, gets, I guess, better defined, kind of like uh, um, in an agile process where you're uh, trying to define your requirements better. And, and then you go to the next one and the next one. And during that entire process, keep your mind open because you will likely hear somebody say something that will make you think of another risk that, that you didn't identify. Once in one of these sessions, somebody with, a, with an accent, a fairly unique accent, as a matter of fact, like uh, he was born in Pakistan, but grew up in the middle of England. So he has a, like a Midlands uh, accent, but it's also has an underlying Pakistani uh, note to it as well. Uh, but the way he said a particular word reminded me of a risk that I had thought of had nothing to do with what he said. It was just how he pronounced a word triggered a thought in my mind. And so I added that to my list and it ended up being a a risk that that was a a good one to to add to to our risk list. Also, when you're doing brainstorming, there is no, um, uh, remember that if you say something even nonsensical, so, um, uh, birds might uh, not know how to use our product properly because they don't have fingers. They only have claws and beaks. Um, okay. That's a pretty nonsensical uh, thing, but even saying nonsensical things helps cre- cause create creative uh, responses in, in other people's heads. So someone might just, you said birds, Oh, birds. I knew a guy named uh, or Larry bird, whatever. Who knows what happens in our brains, but um, the, uh, and I'm, I'm definitely not suggesting you just say nonsensical um, things, but keeping humor involved and keeping the ability to say nonsensical things without judgment will increase the um, diversity of the risks that you identify. I ran a workshop at Let's Test in Sweden on brainstorming and we uh, informally, uh, obviously it wasn't a scientific process, but we had three groups. One group that had to pretend the CEO was in the room and that they were looking to fire people because they were uh, not doing well financially. Another group was enabled, uh, allowed to say whatever the heck they wanted and they were encouraged to say stupid things as well. And then the third group was the same as the second group, but also had a random word generator that showed in the middle of the of the uh, their table, so it would just show random words. Um, I was really hoping the random word generator one would be better than the than the middle the second one, and that the second and third ones were both going to be better than the first. Unfortunately, uh, the random <clears throat> word generator didn't noticeably change anything, and very few people commented that they saw a random word and expanded on it. But both, um, we, we cycled through with um, three different uh, scenarios and every single group said that they did better when they were allowed to say whatever they want without judgment versus having to only say serious answers. And it was noticeably better, like uh, 50 to 60% more um, ideas that came out that were legitimate. You obviously take the nonsensical ones out, but that type of of brainstorming. um, And then the other key aspect is you're not done. 
you've had the brainstorming session, you've identified 20 risks, just to pick a number, you're not done. As you're going through your testing, you're going to think of new risks. As you're going through stand-ups, as you're having a bath at home, you're going to think of new risks. Write them down, bring them up, get them added to the list, see if you can test to mitigate the risk. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But the biggest thing to not miss risks is to keep going because your subconscious will continuously be thinking about risks, whether you know it or not, and you'll see something and you'll say, oh, geez, that could happen to us. That's, that's a risk that we need to, to identify. Yeah, the mental process, I guess, that continues. Uh, yeah, on and, on. And, and I do encourage people to listen to the John Cleese videos because he talks about creativity in a very easy to digest and amusing way. Uh, he uses his humor and creativity to teach people about creativity. Okay. You know, uh, talking about crea creativity and how to incentivize people to think in different ways, right? Uh, I, I really like an approach that Valentina in, in my team has, which is asking, what would you do if you had a magic wand? Uh, okay. what, what would you change? What uh, could be different? You know, in, in, in order to eliminate your restrictions because because you typically try to think uh, of things that are possible and you eliminate the things that you say no this is a stupid idea I, I i don't have to try to go this path uh, right right so uh, but yeah uh, yep that's a good way again yeah people in my experience being able to, um, well, I think it was Jerry Weinberg said, testers know that things can be different. So knowing that there's a lot of the things that people say that would never happen, that's impossible, know that they're quite probably wrong. Um, uh, a, a really good trick to look like you know what you're doing as a tester, especially for junior testers who don't know what's happening, is um, in a meeting where you're they're going over the architecture, there's, there's two things you can do. So uh, one of my favorites is if you have an architecture diagram that shows things talking to other things and links, just say, what happens if this link goes down and just point to a random link? It doesn't matter which one. <laughs> and and the almost, well, regularly some will say, well, that can't go down like it's a database connection or something, it can't go down and I'm going, really? What if, the, what if the server lost power? Well, there's a backup. The backup isn't on this diagram. So, oh, the diagram isn't, isn't accurate. And what if it goes down in the middle of a transaction? So I've sent the data, but I haven't gotten the acknowledgement yet and it goes down. How, what happens to your system as it's sending that request and not getting an acknowledgement back, what happens? You always get an acknowledgement back, but what when you don't? Well, we always do, but what if you didn't? And so, so that's the one thing I do. Another thing I do is just ask the developers, what's the worst thing that can happen? Or what are you most scared about that could happen? Hmm. Because when you ask them that question, they start to think about negative things instead of what's going to go right. Because the developer feelings, minds, 
feelings, yeah. But a developer mindset is how am I gonna make this work and how can I show that it does work? Okay. By asking them what, is, what could go wrong or what's your biggest fear, they start to think about, oh, what might go wrong? And it gets them thinking, because if they're the ones developing it, they really should be able to identify more risks than you because they understand what they're developing and what things could go wrong. So asking them, um, what's your biggest fear or what could go wrong? And um, having just to try to switch their mindset into a negativity one instead of a positivity one helps identify risks. Not that you want to work with negative people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, another, another thing, uh, I guess most of your students, when you teach the, the workshop, uh, the, mm -hmm. they, they are typically testers. Am I right? Mostly, yeah. Mostly? I'd say so, probably 75%. Okay. So what's the typical mistake that testers do when, when doing perform, uh, risk performance analysis? <laughs> <laughs> risk analysis. Um, wow. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I have an answer as to what typically happens. I know a lot of people are scared to bring up risks that they think might be construed as impossible or like, as an example, saying, what if the database doesn't respond or mm -hmm. it, it saying, you know, what if um, somebody pastes a million characters in, into, the, into that field? Uh, I did corrupt a database once <laughs> um, which was interesting. It was my first day on a three-month contract and I asked for my, <clears throat> my own test environment because uh, they, it it, 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 they were an expensive environment. Uh, it was essentially a single server and um, it was an aircraft maintenance software. And I asked for my own version of it and it was cumbersome and complex. I did a mind map of it and it printed out on 35 sheets of paper. It, it was huge. It's by far the biggest mind map I've ever made. And the person who I was working for, who knew the system really well, estimated that I was about 60% complete on that 35 uh, sheet mind map. Uh, anyway, it was big and complicated, but there was this one page that had an advanced search on it and they had no input constraints on any of the fields on the advanced search page. So I put a million characters into six of the fields And I click search and it didn't respond right away. And so I clicked search two more times, um, not realizing when I clicked search the first time that it was actually transmitting six meg uh, to the database, which was then uh, being um, uh, processed and taking a time to respond. So I clicked it two more times uh, by overwhelming the database with uh, 18 meg bytes of search data, um, it actually corrupted the database. And then I got logged out and I thought, oh, it recognized that it was under attack and it logged me out. I was super impressed. Um, it actually didn't. It just logged me out because the database had been corrupted and it didn't know what to do. So it <laughs> responded with, I have a corrupt database. Let's get all the users off the system. So I logged back on. And everything seemed fine. And I was still impressed. I didn't know yet. But then as soon as I touched the database ever, I got logged out. 
And I went, okay, this is wrong. So I asked the senior tester, I said, what's going on? And he looks and he goes, you have corrupted the database. I've been here five years and I've never corrupted the database. You've been testing for less than an hour and a half and you've corrupted the database. So again, I know things can be different. I know some idiot like me is going to try to do it. Could you imagine on an aircraft maintenance software that techs who fix aircraft go in, they want the afternoon off? If the software is down, they're going to get the afternoon off. If they knew that back door to just corrupt the database, huh. all maintenance would stop. They would get the afternoon off while they restored the database. It sounds like a really bad bug to me. Anyway, it was an yeah. easy fix. All you need to do is put input constraints on the input and obviously on the back end, put some. Just in case, some, yeah. Yeah, because, just in case someone know, learns to. Some use use dev to use, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at least have input constraints. Yeah. I wasn't doing anything tricky. I just put a million characters into six fields. Anyway. Oh well, man. I think uh, we could continue talking about Greeks for for hours. I have a couple of probably. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I have a couple of final questions. One is if you have any recommendation about uh, productivity hacks you know if you if you have some habits to to suggest people to form uh, stop writing test cases stop following scripts um, <laughs> might be controversial <laughs> yeah um, and if if you're not allowed to do that And I understand that there's quite a few places that, that you have to have your scripted tests and they have to be executed and they're all tracked in a, in a test management system. Um, if you want to move towards exploratory testing, um, which is a good way of finding more bugs, um, just do some exploratory testing on your own time. Stay an hour late at work, uh, test through lunch hour, uh, skip a meeting that you know you don't need to go to and do testing during that, and just try poking around. And if somebody says, how did you find that bug? What script were you executing? You can say, I, I was just doing some exploratory testing. Um, you, you will likely, hopefully, uh, maybe better than likely, enlighten them that the way they're doing testing is potentially not as efficient as, as they would hope. Um, there's a lot of words that you would uh, need ready because people say, if you say we should stop doing the scripts, well, we need to do the scripts because we need to know the regression is, uh, is working and I don't have time to go into it now, but being able to, to talk intelligently about that and say, Well, if we're testing the scenarios or if we have automation that tests those basic scripts, we don't need the people to be doing the same thing. The people can be doing different testing and, and varying it. Anything that's scripted, why don't you just automate it and have the, the testers use their brains and take the responsibility for their testing? It's not really a hack, but that's, that's what I got for now. <laughs> that works. And um, what about uh, books? Do you have any book to recommend? Lessons Learned in Software Testing by Kanerbach and Petticord uh, is a very good book. It also is good if you have uh, attention deficit disorder like I do, uh, because um, each lesson is very short. So you can get through the book 
uh, without getting bored or distracted. It's, uh, um, uh, it's a whole bunch of uh, short little books. Perfect Software by Jerry Weinberg. Um, Your Brain at Work by David Rock. I have found interesting. It's not about testing, but it definitely helps get your uh, figure out how your brain is working. It's a collection of research that he compiled into a more easily on the brain that he compiled into a, a fairly easy to digest book. It's one of the few books I've read twice. Um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Again, not a testing book, but a book about um, your brain and, and being aware Um most of the books about your brain don't teach you how to fix or work around limitations of your brain, but just being aware of them and what the limitations are helps, helps you um, uh, plan your day so that you're spending the good part of your day that your thinking is, is at its peak doing thinking stuff. Uh, in other words, if you get to this work and the first thing you do is go through email for an hour, that's likely the most productive brain time you have and wasting it on email is yeah. not a good idea. Uh, so again, suggestions like that come out of these types of books. Um, pretty much any book by Jerry Weinberg is good. Uh, uh, general systems thinking. Um, uh, the, the secrets of consulting. Secrets of consulting. Yeah. And uh, more mm -hmm. secrets of consulting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah he, he's written like 20 books and uh, yeah. they're, they're all pretty amazing, but yeah, those, those are the books that I would uh, recommend. Perfect. Perfect. And the last thing, um, do you want to invite people to do something in particular? Follow you on, on social uh, media? You want to follow me on social media? My Twitter handle is Paul Holland underscore TWN, as in the whole nation. Um, that's because I had a Twitter handle for my, uh, the, the whole nation is a company I own that did real estate investment. And somebody asked once I started doing conferences if I had a Twitter handle. So I gave out that one. And before I knew it, I had a couple of hundred software testers following me and it was too late to switch. So um, I just left it as Paul Holland underscore TWN. Uh, I do have a web page, but it's, I haven't updated it in years, but it's testingthoughts.com. There's a couple of blogs up there, which are kind of interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time, for all your thoughts, for everything you share. I really it was appreciate fun. that. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks so... for inviting me. <laughs> See you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. I hope your sense for quality got better after this conversation. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to Quality Sense Podcast. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues or whoever you think can benefit from listening to it. I hope to see you soon. Adios, amigos.